The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance, engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics. Each week, Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part series on the Airbus International Anti-Corruption Enforcement Action. Over the next five episodes, we're going to take a look at the Airbus Enforcement Action from a variety of perspectives. Jay Rosen is going to open up the five-part series and talk to us about the FCPA perspective and set the background. We then jump across the pond to Jonathan Armstrong to take a look at the UK SFO BPA around Airbus. Mike Volkoff considers trade sanctions and the ITAR angle. Cecilia Luz-Genkel talks to us about the French enforcement perspective and the perspective of the French compliance practitioner. And I'm going to end this week by some final reflections on what the Airbus case means for the compliance professional and for international anti-corruption investigations and enforcement going forward. I know you'll enjoy this series. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me, I sure hope I don't butcher your name again, Cecilia Falusa-Genkel. She is a compliance professional in Paris. Uh, We had the opportunity to meet last summer uh, when I spoke at the Circle of Compliance, a group that she is involved with. She is a longtime compliance professional, and I have asked her to come on the podcast to talk about the French compliance practitioner perspective of the Airbus settlement. So, Cecilia, first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Well, Tom, thank you very much for this opportunity to talk about this very interesting case for a compliance officer in France, the Airbus case. Cecilia? I was wondering if you might uh, just give the audience a little bit about your professional background because you have a wide-ranging career in p- compliance, both in France and in other countries. Sure. So I started as an attorney uh, in-house and uh, as an outside counsel, um, but I started in compliance in a medical device company in 2008. Um, since then, I've worked in several industries and countries, uh, such as the UK, Vietnam, Gabon, and Nigeria. And I'm working now with companies on their compliance programs, and I've been working with um, some governmental agencies on anti-corruption initiatives uh, in the frame of um, collective actions. And since 2017, I have the pleasure of being the Secretary General of a French Association, the Circle of Compliance. So, so yeah, the uh, Airbus International Anti-Corruption Enforcement Action would seem to represent a major change for French prosecution of uh, corruption. Would that be a fair assessment? Uh, Yes, it it is definitely noticeable. Um, And there are several reasons for this to be such a landmark case. Uh, The first is it is a negotiated resolution agreement. Of course, uh, we call them CJIPs in France. Um, And they are uh, uh, akin to your DPAs. Uh, But those are quite recent in France since 2016. And uh, to actually have a resolution of that magnitude reinforces the legitimacy of the whole mechanism. So that's one first uh, aspect of, of uh, that's noticeable about this case. The second is that Airbus um, voluntarily disclosed and reported to the authorities, which is something 
French companies still had to wrap their head around, uh, uh, specifically in the anti-corruption arena. Uh, leniency for self-reporting uh, uh, companies has been around for many years in the anti in antitrust, but for anti-corruption, it's quite new. And the third point is that, uh, of course, it's a remarkable case of international cooperation between anti-corruption authorities, uh, and it's between France, the US, and the UK. And for the first time, really, France uh, could really tell its counterparts that it can take care of its own bribery case uh, head on. And the last, of course, last but not least, it is the largest anti-corruption enforcement action in France. Uh, and it sanctions acts of corruption of foreign public officials. Uh, before the Sapin II law, there was a couple of cases of corruption of foreign, cor uh, uh, foreign public officials, sorry, but they didn't come through. And this was, of course, one of the uh, main areas of criticism of, of uh, France and its anti-corruption um, system. But this is, all aspects are actually quite new and quite remarkable. Cecilia, the real reason I wanted to, to speak with you on this case from your perspective is you've been a compliance officer for over 10 years. And I know uh, you, you've been preaching compliance and in many ways evangelizing compliance in France and French-speaking uh, countries. But now, with this enforcement action, if you went in front of a French company's board of directors, what would you tell them? First thing is Sapin II law it was already quite groundbreaking in this respect uh, because it imposes the implementation of the anti-corruption program to the actual top management of an entity. Um, but with this case, we actually have an excellent argument, brighter than ever, an excellent advocacy for culture culture about, above anything else. I mean, I think as a board of director, as a director, you understand you need to tackle the cultural component of, of a program first when you first read some of the emails that we can see in the case. Those emails were sent by high-ranking employees of one of the country's most renowned companies. Also, when you realize how actually the international growth business model was relying on those CD intermediaries. And when you also realize how weak your organization can be when so many parties, so many bystanders, the recipients, the international sales directors, their assistants are witnessing the bribes. So I think this is really an excellent uh, argument to show the need to look at culture. Yes, to go down the list of all what the things that are requested, required by Sapin, the program, the, the code of conduct, all are essential. But you understand, I think, when you look at how deep uh, the, the behaviors were, um, that culture is going to really uh, be absolutely critical in the success or the failure of your program. Cecilia, as I mentioned, you've been in compliance for many years. Um, I've certainly had the opportunity to visit with you and your colleagues on the circle of compliance and uh, many other compliance practitioners with significant compliance experience. Do you feel that this uh, settlement, uh, I guess, both the investigation and the settlement validate uh, many of the things you have been trying to educate French companies on around ethics and compliance? Yes, there's, there's one point really uh, that I think is really uh, clearly, clearly appearing in this case. 
uh, it's absolutely that companies cannot be all clean inside and turn a blind eye to what intermediaries are doing. This has been ever so obvious for so many years under the FCPA. But I think for other maybe international companies and maybe uh, some some for some companies, uh, I think this Airbus case is really bringing the point home. So, so you're one of the questions I receive here in the United States from compliance practitioners is that the case is so massive. The corruption was so systemic, literally on every con- continent in the globe, um, that an individual compliance practitioner is having trouble understanding how this case actually applies to them. How could you help them understand uh, the building blocks of compliance and um, how to get their head around it, I guess? Uh, first, I would actually absolutely encourage uh, any uh, compliance professional, especially French, because the document is in French, to actually read uh, the, the document, the CJIP. Um, and I think the first thing, it's very obvious, but it's worth saying that no amount of legitimation, legitim- legitimization or um, sophistication should fool us. Uh, you see that in this case, the corruption was well hidden under official agreements, that it was hosted by a specific unit within the group, uh, managed by top-ranking uh, um, direct managers of the company uh, who were in charge of dealing with those intermediaries. So that's the first, the first point. And this leads directly to the second point, which is essential that we always talk about, you know, the need for compliance officers and compliance office. I would like to to talk about the compliance office um, more generally. Uh, We talk about the need for resources. But I think actually what this points the finger to, more specifically, is the the need for resources and means to monitor the program. Uh, And it's not the job of internal audit to monitor the efficacy of of programs. It really is the compliance office, office job. And this is really... I think a, a clear point of the extent of monitoring you need to put in place to uh, make sure the program you put in place is efficient. And of course, when you see something that of that extent, you 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 think about um, of course some tools such as you know autom- automation, but also some um, digitalization and probably some inter- in, um, artificial intelligence in terms of. Uh, assisting some uh, some compliance officers in those very large groups to to know where to look at. But even in smaller organizations, without being so sophisticated, I think uh, compliance officers in those smaller uh, organizations need to understand the difference between monitoring uh, the program and and auditing. And and the last thing is, I think it gives us a, a even stronger argument that we need it, uh, about the need to look at business partners from the business rational rationale be, behind the hiring uh, of such intermediaries. Well before we we delve into uh, due diligence, I think asking the relevant questions about. Um, why are we doing business with those uh, certain entities, certain business partners can help dramatically before just going into due diligence almost sometimes just, just for the sake of it? Uh, Cecilia, those are absolutely great points, and they, they cut across, I think, every country and every region's compliance uh, program and compliance discipline. Uh, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. This has been a 
a great podcast. And I think the American compliance community that hears your thoughts is really going to uh, not only have a newfound pride in the French prosecutors, but also in the French compliance profession. So thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thank you very much, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this fourth episode in our five-part exploration of the Airbus International Anti-Corruption Enforcement Action. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow for our concluding episode, where I'm going to sum up the case, what it means, with some final thoughts about this most significant case, indeed the largest in the history of international anti-corruption enforcement. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.